title of today's sermon is Purified Water, and it's taken from Zechariah 13, verses 1 through 9. Well, we're in Zechariah, and we're in chapter 13. I trust in the next two weeks, the Lord wills, I'll be finishing it up, and then we'll be moving on to 2 Peter, and... uh, you can go ahead and begin to read there if you'd like. It's always a good thing to prepare for coming sermons from the pulpit by reading the material that will be preached over. But today it's chapter 13. So would you bow your heart and head and let us ask God to speak to us today through this ancient book. Father, we thank you that Zechariah wrote these words so long ago. And Father, we know that they're not a mystery to us, as some might say. But they speak of future events in which you will sovereignly oversee and bring about your son's kingdom. We pray for that day. We look forward to that day. But as as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, help us, Father, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be your witnesses. Help us, Father, to live godly lives as we await the day of his return. Guide us now, encourage us through these words we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We love to hear stories, whether they are stories told to us, read to us, or appear on the big screen. We love stories about the past. We love stories about the future and stories about the present. Many of the old stories, as you know, began with that familiar opening line, Once Upon a Time. There's even a current television show that goes by that name. The opening of a fairy tale or a story is very important, for it's meant to grab the reader's attention. It will often unveil the beginning of a mystery or who's done it. Have you ever started to read a story and then just after a few pages you say, Nah, this isn't for me. Well, there's an iconic movie that uses this hook. Please watch the following clip from The Princess Bride. feeling any better? A little bit. Guess what? What? Your grandfather's here. Mom, can't you tell me I'm sick? You're sick. That's why he's here. He'll pinch my cheek. I hate that. Maybe he won't. Hey, how is this sick? Huh? I'll leave you two pals alone. I brought you a special present. What is it? Open it up. A book? That's right. When I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. 
It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. Is it got any sports in it? Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's very nice of you. Your vote of confidence is overwhelming. All right. The Prince's Bride. By S. Morgenstern, Chapter One. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Our favorite pastimes were riding a horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said to me. Farm boy, fill these with water. Please. As you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. Phone boy. Fetch me that kissing book. Wait, just wait. When's it get good? Keep your shirt on. Let me read. What's the hook? If you return to me, I will return to you. Zechariah said in chapter 1. We've been studying this book of Zechariah since last February. Can you believe it? I figure it's about time we should finish it, don't you? And we will finish it unless the Lord returns before that by the end of the month. In the previous chapters, the Lord has revealed his program for the nation of Israel. This program progresses through the book of Zechariah from the coming the first time of the Messiah, in which Jesus offered himself to be the king of Israel, and he entered into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, until his second coming, in which he, the good Shepherd, the Davidic king, will again offer himself and become the king of Israel. Now the first coming, the leaders of Israel realized who he was, that he was a threat to their position, and they sold him for 30 pieces of silver. 
But you and I know that the Lord Jesus gave himself up willingly. And he was pierced through, as stated by Zechariah just a few chapters ago. Then his second coming. And when he comes, we know that his coming will be preceded by the removal of the church from this earth. And then the restrainer will be taken out of the way. And Satan will bring forth his henchmen, as we've seen in the last couple of chapters. The false prophet, the Antichrist, to lead the nation of Israel down the path into the great tribulation. God has allowed all of this to prepare this earth for his chosen people, Israel, in order that they would receive Jesus Christ. So when that time comes and Jesus returns, he will be embraced by the chosen people. The Lord will then, at that time, establish his thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. It's worthy to note that Zechariah never once mentions the period of time that elapses between the first and the second coming of Christ, called the church age. This is the period of time in which you and I now live in. Some of the folks refer to this as the age of grace. That is, the time period which runs from his first coming, to the rapture of the church. During the the next period of time, the tribulation, Satan releases the worthless shepherd who comes and offers a peace treaty to the people of Israel. And he, the worthless shepherd or the Antichrist, is partnered with the false prophet to deceive the people during the seven-year tribulation. During this period, Satan will attempt to establish himself as a dictator over the world, and he will be worshipped. As his plans are about to come to fruition, the Lord Jesus Christ will return, setting his feet down on the Mount of Olives. So that's where we've been in these previous chapters. I conclude that based on a literal and grammatical and historical interpretation of the book of Zechariah, rather than an allegorical one. Now, there are many capable Bible expositors out there in Christendom who believe that God has no further purpose nor future for the nation of Israel. To them, Israel is just one more member of the world community. They believe the church and Israel have become one and the same. So then all the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament are really for the church today, according to their uh, understanding of Scripture. Apparently, they don't believe what God literally says. So let me explain. One must read the Old Testament prophets, including Zechariah, literally, rather than allegorically. One cannot hold to an allegorical understanding of Scripture and come to a real understanding of what the Old Testament prophets were alluding to. They must spiritualize away the text. Those who see the church, and many do, in this text that we will read this morning, have a very low view of Scripture. So let me attempt to connect the dots here between the previous chapters, chapter 12 specifically, with chapter 13, so that we can see that there's a continuity in the thought of Zechariah as he presents the program for Israel in the future. You'll recall the last time we were together, last week, Israel was mourning and wailing over their sinful rejection of the Messiah. In the future, 
They were told that the Messiah would return and that he would be the good shepherd and that he would be from the line of David and that he would be in contrast to the evil leaders that ruled over them during the tribulation. So as we connect these texts, we see that chapter 13 is meant to comfort the Jews who lived during Zechariah's day as well as those who will live during the future tribulation. Dr. Merrill Unger in his well-known Bible commentary on the book of Zechariah, says this, If we are to understand this text, it must be driven by a literal application of these prophecies to the restoration and the conversion of the nation of Israel at the second advent of Christ. Only such a hermeneutic can satisfy the scope of these prophetic disclosures. Other interpretations, Dr. Anderson, Unger says, ignore the true scope of Zechariah's prophecy as a whole and violate the immediate context by resorting to pointless mysticism while falling into a morass of uncertainty and confusion. Well, it's my hope this morning that you do not leave this place in a morass of uncertainty and confusion, but that you clearly understand that God does have a program for Israel that's separate from the church, that he still loves the people of Israel and that he plans on working out his program for them during the coming end times. Now, you see, if there's a, a mist in the pulpit, there's going to be a fog in the pew. So we're going to attempt to straighten out to understand what God is saying here about the future of Israel So if you would, turn with me to chapter 13 of the book of Zechariah. You can find this text on page 948 of the Pew Bible. In it, we read of a wonderful flowing fountain. When I was growing up in Chicago, you can see behind me in the pictures, the famous Buckingham Fountain. It lies on the lakeshore of um, Lake Michigan. I would really enjoy going there and watching the light show and the water show that was displayed Uh, around 15 hours a day. In this text, we see the Lord's provision for the cleansing of Israel. We see the provision for Israel's cleansing in verse 1. Look there with me. In that day, a fountain, and you can go ahead and put up that, that outline. In that day, a fountain will be opened in the house of David for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Once again, let me remind you how this text begins. If you're going to understand the Bible, you really have to read it. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Most people do not read the Bible. If you open up this text, you're going to find that phrase, in that day, used repetitively, as I mentioned last week. It speaks to, it points to the end time events that take place at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So this cannot be speaking of a literal fountain flowing like Buckingham in Chicago back in the house of David or in his palace in Israel during ancient times. William Cooper, a hymn writer, was obviously moved by this text when he wrote, there's a fountain filled with blood, Emmanuel's blood. He was thinking of this verse in which we have pictured a fountain of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's gushing out and cleansing those who look to the Messiah for their sin to be removed. His sin, his him, I should say, depicts a fountain flowing with forgiveness. And it's coming from the wounds of the Savior. Now, as you know, David was king over Israel back during uh, 1000 B.C. and around that time, that 100-year period, 1000 to 900 B.C. It would be out of his lineage that the Messiah would come, as noted by this verse. It is from David's line that the forgiveness of sin spoken here will flow like a fountain. So then, the coming Messiah will offer forgiveness to all Israel, its inhabitants, including those in Jerusalem, and this spiritual cleansing will deal with the issues that Israel has been suffering for thousands of years. They've sinned against a holy God, as is noted in verse 1. Notice the Hebrew word that describes their sin. It's hatat, H-A-T-T-A-T in Hebrew. It's a general term which can be translated as missing the mark. To miss the mark speaks of man's predisposition to misbehave, to fall into sin, to offend a holy God. The second Hebrew word that is used in this text and is translated in most Bibles as impurity is the word nadah, N-I-D-D-A. It's a general term that conveys the idea of ritual and moral impurity. The Jewish people had been missing the mark by their refusal to practice the rituals that had been laid down by God in scriptures and they had become morally impure. Therefore, Israel must be judged and purified. Now in verse 2 we read that the day of their purification is coming. Look with me there. It will come about when? In that day, circle it, highlight it, whenever you see that in the Bible from beginning to to the end, in that day or on that day refers to the end times. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets. You should put false before that. I will also remove the false prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. At the end of the last chapter, if you were with us, you would have noticed that there was going to be a cleansing. That cleansing would have been the removal of many of the Jews from the land. We're going to learn in this text that actually two-thirds of the people, two-thirds of the Jews in the millennial kingdom will be killed. Only one-third will live on. It seems that when Israel is finally related to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah, there will still, however, be those within the millennial kingdom who will rebel against God. As you know, the Lord must deal with sin. Whether it's in the Garden of Eden, whether it's in Israel under the law, whether it's in the church age of grace, or the kingdom that Jesus Christ will rule over as a theocracy. The Lord must deal with sin in every and all dispensations. There will be no room under his rule for false prophets or the worship of idols. Now, in our studies of Israel, we've seen the role that idolatry played in their troubles. Idolatry caused Israel to be sent into exile, into the Babylonian exile, and then into the Persian exile. Even when the Lord was trying to save them, 
this ugly sin of worshiping Baal and other idols would rise up to underscore their real feelings. In the end times, believe it or not, many of the Jews will worship the Antichrist. Matthew tells us in the Olivet Discourse, listen now, this speaks of the end times, many false prophets will arise and will lead many astray. If anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, there he is, do not believe him. The Apostle John makes this abundantly clear as well in chapter 13 of the Revelation when he says, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who's like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemy and authority to act for 42 months. How long is the tribulation? 42 months, and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, all who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And the authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Here we see the turmoil in the tribulation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. And he spoke as a dragon. And he exercised all authority over the first beast in his presence. And he, this is the beast and the Antichrist. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs, and so that even fire comes down out of heaven and uh, in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs that it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded with the sword and has come to life once again. So there we have it. During the Messianic kingdom, The land of promise will need to have the idols removed. Jesus will remove the idols so that he can reign. Now, as you know, during the days of Israel, from the time that the law was instituted until now, they had a habit of falling into worshiping false idols, having teraphim, as we saw in this text just a few chapters ago, Household idols that they would place on shelves in their, in their houses. So it shouldn't surprise us that people of every dispensation fall for such things. Many today wear amulets or good, chuck, good luck charms around their neck. So it shouldn't surprise us that people look to things for spiritual power. Uh, you can put that picture up. I was advised by a real estate agent once to bury a statue of St. Joseph the worker in our backyard when we were trying to sell our home. We were told to bury the statue upside down in the backyard and that it would be a guarantee to sell our house. And then when you sold your house, you were supposed to dig up that statue of St. Joseph the worker and then put it in your front yard right side up underground. That is, if you wanted the Lord to continue to bless you. People will engage in this nonsense in every dispensation and worship idols and things, amulets. People wear crosses around their neck thinking that it will bring them good luck. 
but the Lord is going to remove the idols. So he will also cleanse Israel, the remnant, the one-third who is alive when he comes. He will remove the false prophets from among them. People today really love false prophets. They love their gurus. They love Oprah. Don't they? Oprah is almost worshipped, looked upon as a god by some people. People love Dr. Oz. These people are antichrist. People love Joel Osteen, who is obviously a minister of darkness and not a true prophet of God. We see it in every time period. So the prophets will, the process will ensue in which the Lord will remove the idols. He will remove the false prophets in order that the true worship of God can be accomplished in the millennial kingdom. This will be a thorough process so that even their names, we are told in this text, will no longer be remembered. Now, in the Old Testament, the prophets there warned about the people falling into such practices. But the people of Israel just couldn't help themselves. They became fascinated with those idols and those gods that were around them and worshipped by pagans. Most of the false prophets were confronted by the true prophets of God. And in fact, they were accused by the prophets of God as being frauds. Oftentimes, the Jewish people would then kill the true prophets. For example, in chapter 23 of Jeremiah... The prophet Jeremiah tells us, As for the false prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble because of the Lord and his holy word. And then Ezekiel comments on false prophets saying this directly from the Lord. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy on their own. Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. They are falsehood and lying divination who are saying, The Lord declares when the Lord has not declared. Yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. Because you have spoken falsehood, says the Lord, and seen a lie. Therefore, behold, I am against you. So there it is. There are false prophets in every age, including our own. There are those who worship idols in every age, including our own. But when the Lord returns, he's going to clean up the remnant that remains in Israel. He will deal with the worship of idols and the false prophets in the land. As Daniel states, forces from him will arise and desecrate the sacred fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. When the Lord returns, he will deal with them, and this in particular. As we read in the letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, his second letter, chapter 2. He who opposes and exalts himself above all so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So these counterfeit prophets come, they proclaim, they act like God themselves, they even go to the temple of God and take it over. But in that day, God will deal with these evil men. He will deal with those who worship idols. He will deal with the false prophets. Now you'll recall in a previous chapter of Zechariah, that the Lord called the leaders of Israel false prophets or false shepherds or false leaders. They oppose the true will of God. And these false shepherds will be unmasked 
and removed from the land. We read in verse 3, if anyone still prophesies, that's falsely is the idea, then his father and mother who gave him birth will say to him, you shall not live for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And the father and mother who gave birth to him will, wow, get this, pierce him through when he prophesies. And I thought I was a disciplinarian. (laughs) If you're a parent, you probably had occasion to think, boy, I'd like to do something with one of those kids. But nobody ever thought about running their kids through. But here, the parents in the end time will not allow even their own children to besmirch the name of the Lord. Their parental affection will not override this terrible sin against God. For they will be the first to take action against their own offspring. Love for God and love for Jesus must override even our natural affection for our children. You would have thought that once this one-third of the Jewish people were saved and delivered from paganism, that they would never return to it. But that's how hard-hearted the heart is. Have we seen this in our own day? Yes, we have. Our world seems hell-bent on destroying itself, doesn't it? We just had the killings in Orlando this morning. Evil and darkness is raging over the world like we haven't seen it since the Middle Ages. Who would have ever thought that you would see with your own eyes the peaceful religion beheading people? Numerous people. Often, again and again. Who would have thought we would see women burned alive in cages. Doesn't that sound like something out of the Middle Ages? Who would have ever thought in America we would see people, our own citizens, honor killing women within their own families? This turn to barbarism is certainly demonic in form. It's caused by an ignorance of the Word of God. It is ignorance that always energizes false religion and the occult. One thing we can say about the false prophets, however, especially in this time to come, is they're not dumb. They ain't dumb. Look with me at verse 4. They know when it's time to duck and cover. It will come about when? In that day. You think he's making a point here? I think so. In that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. Hey, this shtick ain't working anymore. It's time to stop reading palms. It's time for me to stop tattooing people with the pentagram. It's time to learn another way to make some cash. You see, the national conversion of Israel, when the Lord returns, will cause the false prophets to give up their practices during that day. A purging of evildoers will be underway. The application of divine justice underneath the theocracy will cause these false prophets to be driven underground. They will even disavow their former practice. They will stop dressing the part. That's what we hear here. They're going to stop wearing their hairy coats. Remember it was Elijah who wore a hairy coat? Remember it was Elisha who wore a hairy coat? They identified him as a prophet. Remember John the Baptist? He wore much the same. It would be sort of like if all the Elvis impersonators in Las Vegas 
were pursuing their bad impersonations of him, and all of a sudden, the real Elvis showed up. They'd stop wearing their capes on their back and their sneers on their lips because they wouldn't want to look foolish if Elvis was really there. So it is with the false prophets. They will change their dress and they will stop acting like sheep in wolves' clothing. And they will immediately try to blend in with everyone else. I recall that this is not an old practice. This is not a new practice. This is a very old practice. Maybe you can remember back with me to the book of Genesis. Do you remember when... Uh, Jacob tried to fool his father Isaac. What did he do? Put hair on the back of his neck, remember? Put hair on his arms. Told his dad that he was his son, Esau. So this is not an old trick, trying to dress the part to fool other people. But these men will become ashamed, says the verse, of their lies and their deceit, and they will try to ditch their responsibility for their actions by changing who they are, changing their identity, if you will, and they will just outright lie about their previous practices, their previous life. Look at me at verse 5. I'm not a prophet. No, <laughs> me? What? No, I'm not a prophet. I'm a tiller of the ground. I'm a poor farmer. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. That's who I am, a prophet. No way, dude. Why would you think I'm a prophet? I'm not. I'm just, a, I'm just an old farmer. And I, and I was roped into it. I was taken captive and sold into slavery. You should feel sorry for me. But then those who are interrogating him, questioning him, by the way, they won't, they won't re- resort to waterboarding, I don't think. No Chinese water torture for this. They'll just simply ask questions. Notice the question in verse 6. What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, the false prophet, oh, don't pay attention to that. That was when I was wounded in the house of my friends. We were just fooling around. You see, false prophets will be identified by certain signs on their body. I believe the false prophets seek tattooing and piercings, and cuttings on themselves. The false prophets back in the Old Testament days did that. They cut themselves as part of their rituals. Remember when Elijah was challenged by the prophets of Baal? They cut themselves. They worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth and all the other pagan gods by doing such terrible things. It showed their great devotion to their God. Self-laceration has been part of our culture as well. And we see people tattooing themselves all over the place and piercing themselves. You can't get rid of those telltale signs. We read of where this originated in 1 Kings chapter 18, where the pagan prophets cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. Wow, that sounds like a great way to worship a God, doesn't it? Well, such lacerations always leave their telltale marks, their scars on the skin. You can't do this and cover it up. But these guys are liars and quick thinking, these false prophets. And notice they have an answer for the accusations brought by their interrogators. Their claim that these marks were given to them by their family or their friends in some previous time. But in actuality, their wounds betrayed them. It betrayed their profession as worshipers of false gods. Now we move to the second portion of the last oracle 
or burden of Zechariah. And it speaks of a restoration of the people of Israel during the end times. In the first burden, you'll remember in chapters 10 and 11, the Lord was not in view at all. But in this second burden, the Lord is at the forefront. He's at the focus. We learn of the provision of the true shepherd for his people, beginning with verse 7. Look at the call to action that is given by God to his people, especially his own son. In verse 7, Awaken, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may scatter, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Okay, this is confusing to a lot of people because what we have here is a mixture of his first and second comings. And the prophets of old, you know, the telescoping prophetic view that they had, there would be two peaks, one of the first coming and then a second peak of the second coming with the valley of the church age in between. And as the prophet was looking at the two peaks, he got them mixed up. That's what's taking place here. We're getting visions of both comings. Here in this first quote of God the Father, we know that's him because it says the Lord of hosts, he is speaking about an inanimate object, a sword, but then he is not. If you're a grammar Nazi, you know that the sword is being used here as a figure of speech. It's not, this case, it's not a literal sword. He's using this as a synecdoche. That is, if you've forgotten your middle school grammar, it's one specific object that can stand for a larger and bigger concept. In this case, the sword is being figuratively used of justice, especially justice that's instituted by a government. In this case, the sword, of instru- the sword is the instrument of justice that's being wielded by the power of the government. The Father will bring about his will through the passion of his Son when the Roman government kills him. The Messiah will be slain and Israel will be scattered. That's what this text is saying. The Messiah will be slain and the and Israel will be scattered. The sword is being wielded by the Roman government. It's instituting justice, at least it thought it was, on the condemned, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this is true. We find this in both of the Testaments, both the Old and the New. When the psalmist writes, Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. And in the New Testament, the classic statement on the authority of government is found in Romans 13, where Paul writes that the government is to use the sword as the minister of God for your good. That's Romans 13, 4. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, but it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the function, the right function of the government is to be a minister for justice by wielding the sword. That is, of course, with one caveat. That caveat is that the government wield its power and authority righteously and justly. And in this case, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ was killed by Roman powers unjustly. And yet, they did so with the approval of God the Father because it was being done for greater purposes. Notice that the sword is to be used against 
looking back at the text now, my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Father, the Lord of hosts. So who is my shepherd? Who is the man? Who is my associate? These terms we have translated into English in our text. Actually, there's no one-to-one correspondence, but they have greater meaning. For example, my shepherd speaks of one who walks along with another. In this case, the two walking together are the son and the father. And the phrase, my associate, is also used in other places and is translated as he who is close to me. It's used that way in Leviticus, speaking of the nearest relative. So the the Hebrew terms used here and translated as my shepherd and my associate speak of a close relationship of a confidant of equal relationship, even the nearest kin. So we must contrast that with the other word, term that's used, the man. And then what we see here is an affirmation of the dual nature of the coming Messiah. That Jesus would be 100% man and 100% divine. He is God and man together. He is the associate of the Father. He is the shepherd of the Father. He is his friend, companion, and equal, but he is also fully man. This affirms his divinity and his humanity Well, the sword that's being used here and wielded by the government as a minister of justice is used to do what? Looking back at the text, what does it say? Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. Again, the speaker in the text is the Lord of hosts, God the Father, Yahweh. And he's identified the shepherd, his associate, the man, as the Messiah, the Christ. And he is going to allow the government to strike his son. It was with the approval of God the Father that the Lord Jesus Christ was slain for the sins of mankind. How do I know that's true? How do I know that's for sure? Am I just making all of this up? Is this Scott Moffat's opinion? (laughs) I can tell you categorically it's not. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ himself said. He quotes this verse twice, we find it, quoted, in Mark and in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said to his disciples, You will fall away Because of me, this night, for it is written, and he quotes Zechariah, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And again, there's the same exact same quote in the book of Mark. So this prophecy directly relates to the death of Christ, the God-man, the one sent by the Father to be the Messiah who was rejected and suffered a cruel death brought about by the government of the Romans at the bequest of the Jewish leaders. His death had a twofold effect. The first consequence we see in this text is clear. Jesus says it's going to happen. The sheep will be scattered. As you know, following his death, during the establishment of the early church, the disciples of Jesus went off in every direction because they came under terrible persecution. History tells us that the early church had 
his hand, notice, against the little ones. This refers, I believe, back to the book of Acts and the persecution of the early church by both the Roman government and the Jewish leaders. The scattering of the sheep is called the dysphoria. Maybe you've heard of that. That's when believers in the early church scattered across the known ancient world. The followers of Christ were humbled by this persecution. They were helpless during this time of persecution. But the fulfillment of it was that God would have the gospel taken to the whole world through those who were scattered. The same thing will happen during the tribulation. Always in prophecy, there is a near fulfillment. We saw that in the early church. And there is a far fulfillment, a small fulfillment, and a greater fulfillment. We will see that because it tells us in the book of Revelation. Chapter 12, it says this. Then the woman, that's Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be there and be nourished for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That's Jesus. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman and she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and time and time and a half from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured out water on the river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood, persecution. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank of the river, and the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged against the woman and went off to make war with her and the rest of her children and who kept the commandments of God and kept holding to the testimony of Jesus. The gospel is going to be spread by those who are persecuted during the tribulation. So there it is. Zechariah. Like all the other prophets, major and minor telescopes sees these two comings of Jesus, the first advent and the second advent, together. They sort of telescope together. Here we see the scattering of sheep. Those after his death during the early church, 70 AD and beyond. And now we see it in the great tribulation, as Zechariah tells us of these events in the future. Now verse 8. Ultimately, many will fall under sway in the great tribulation of the worthless shepherd and that will cause their dispersal as I just read in Revelation chapter 13. Here we have the remnant of Israel in verse 8 returning to the Lord. It will come about, Zechariah writes, in all the land, declares the Lord, that the two parts in it will be cut off and perish. Two parts? Two-thirds of the people? Two-thirds of Jews will die? but one-third will be left in it. Now, let me ask you, has there been a time when two-thirds of all Jews across the world have died? It has not happened, but it will happen during the tribulation. They will be struck down and perish. It is the remaining one-third of Jews who will live and go into the millennial period. They will be the remnant who embraces the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. They will return to Him. Now in verse 9, we notice that there's a purifying process of those one-third of believers as we read of the Father's action when He says, I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name. You know what Jews calling on the name of Jesus right now? I don't. They will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say, these 
or they, I should say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Notice this verse begins with the statement, I will bring them a third part through the fire. Some English translations say this, and it will come to pass. The point is there's this time period that takes place. There's a time period that ensues between verse 7 and verses 8 and 9. That gap is the church age. Okay, There's evidence that this verse 7 took place before the events of 70 A.D. They were fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. But those events in verses 8 and 9 have not taken place yet and will not take place until the Great Tribulation, almost two centuries and beyond later. So these two events speak of Israel and not the Lord, nor the church. These events that are coming yet will purify. They're meant to test, purify, and refine the Jewish remnant that is saved in the tribulation. Two-thirds of Israel will be wiped out, but one-third will populate the millennial kingdom. Some refer to the 144,000 as part of that. Ezekiel speaks of this as well in chapter 5 of his book, saying this. One-third, isn't that amazing how consistent the Bible is? One-third of you shall burn in the fire in the center of the city when the days of the siege are completed. That's the tribulation. That's the persecution. Then you shall take one-third and strike it with the sword all around the city. And one-third you will be scattered to the wind. Those are the two-thirds that die. And I will unsheath a sword behind them. One-third of you will die by plague and be consumed by famine around you. And one-third will fall by the sword around you. And one-third I will scatter to the winds and unsheath a sword behind them. In other words, protect them. The Lord speaks of this purifying process that takes place to the remnant Jews, the one-third that live and go into the millennial period, in verse 9. It says, in verse 9 of Zechariah, And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. So then, the Great Tribulation has two purposes. The first pur- purpose I mentioned already, the scattering of the sheep. The, second, uh, the first purpose results in their testing, purification, refining. Secondly, we know that the other purpose is that two-thirds of Israel will be destroyed. Two-thirds of unbelieving Israel is to be destroyed. Why? Because they refuse to believe in the one who has come to save them. The refining process is to take the people... And turn up the heat. Just like you take silver and gold and you put it in a cauldron and you turn the heat up and you take off the dross. And what do you have? Purified gold or or silver. This is the last part of the tribulation in which the heat is turned up through the persecution, through the arrival of the beast and the Antichrist. And he removes the dross. The two-thirds of the Jews, they're taken away, but one-third of pure gold is left. The remaining remnant is saved, purified, and brought into the millennial kingdom of God. How do I know this? Well, the book of Acts tells us so. Acts chapter 2, verse 21 says, It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, whose miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you saw yourself know this man delivered over to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed 
to a cross by godless men, and you put him to death. The forefathers took part in the crucifixion of Jesus. They did it so in cooperation with the godless Romans, but there are those who will call upon the name of the Lord and be restored as his people. When? In Romans chapter 11, Paul says, All Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. Who came from Zion? The Lord Jesus. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. The purpose of God all along, through the first dispensation of creation till now, has been to have a purified people for his name. And it is God who saves them. Israel will call upon his name. They will come to know the Messiah as their Savior and as their King. Now, as an aside, in this last verse, I want you to notice a keyistic, a keyistic, I should say, structure. Let me explain that to you. Looking at the last portion of the verse, the last line, notice the repetition of the pronouns, they, I, I, and then they. This is a keyistic pattern called A-B-B-A. Authors would use this pattern to underscore, to emphasize, to highlight. They couldn't do it in their writings. They couldn't take a highlighter like we can or, or underscore it with an underline. So they use this methodology. The they and they are the A's and the I and I are the B's. And it focuses the reader's mind and thoughts and vision on the eyes. This reflects true truths, the two sides of the relationship that exists between God and man. In other words, there's the divine cause and the human effect. There's the sovereignty of God and the will of man. Man must call on the Lord and then the Lord will answer them. They, they will call on my name. I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. This is God speaking through Zechariah to his people, showing them of his great love, his concern, his intentions to save them, but he will not force himself upon them. They must choose to trust him. He must turn up the heat, and that will take place during the great tribulation, and then the whole nation, the one-third that is left, will turn to him for deliverance. They will call out, and he will answer. But so far... Israel is not calling out, and God is not answering. So, what can we take from this text? How can we understand it and apply it to our life? What does Israel's future have to do with us today? We can learn that forgiveness flows from the fountain of Emmanuel's veins. There's forgiveness for anyone who will trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in the blood of Christ this morning? It is by his blood that we are saved. He died so that you could live. Secondly, we can learn from this text that God must deal with sin. It doesn't matter if it's the Garden of Eden. It doesn't matter if it's those who broke the law or those who refuse the grace of God today or the Jew in the millennial kingdom who will not believe. God must deal with sin. He must judge it. Have you trusted him? 
He's dealt with your sin at the cross. Thirdly, this text should cause us to ask if we have idols in our own lives. Are we loving idols? Do we have any teraphim at home that we polish and love and put up on our own little shelves in our own houses? Something that's taken the place of God? We all have them, don't we? Get rid of them. Remove those idols from your life, whether it's your car, your job, some relationship that you exalt over him. Remove the idols from your life. Maybe you've made the mistake of following a false prophet. Maybe you worship some, let me say it, clown on television that all he does is ask you to send in your faith money so that God can bless you. That's baloney. It's not consistent with the scriptures. Don't follow false prophets. All they want is use you and abuse you. They might even show the sincerity of their prophetness by cutting themselves or doing some extraordinary thing. Don't buy into it. Remove the false prophets from your life. Look deep in your heart and your mind and you ask, am I following a false prophet or a true prophet? Finally, we need to be honest with ourselves and ask Am I choosing God in my life? Am I calling upon his name? Or am I calling upon some other name? I trust you're calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you, who bled and shed his blood for you, that you might be saved. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the word of God which tells us the truth about ourselves. Help us, Father, to deal with the propensity to worship false idols, to follow false prophets. Help us, Lord, to return and focus on the great I am. Help us to focus on our Heavenly Father and the riches of grace that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to call on him. Bless us, Father, as we reach out to others with the good news. Help us, Father, to live godly in this present world as we look forward to the day of our Savior's return. And it's in his name we ask it. Amen.